0: Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to class number three of the Dracula seminar. Uh, Good to be with you again here tonight. Really looking forward to Dracula's arrival in England, which is what we're going to be focusing on here this evening. Uh, First, I just wanted to follow up with the announcement I made last week about uh, the... Summer courses for Signum University. Uh, the registration is not quite open yet. We're just about there, uh, but the web pages are up. I've posted the links uh, in the uh, uh, in the in the chat, and uh, just wanted to show you briefly um, uh, to sort of follow up on my announcement from last time. Our, uh, if you go to these web pages, you will see uh, a list of uh, what you'll actually be covering, and the you know, the whole the full course description, the week by week breakdown. Um so you're wanna see how the old english class goes and again, if you've taken an introduction to old English class so that you can uh jump right in and be as you can see uh you know you'd be translating two hundred and fifty lines a week uh from the anglo saxon so um anyway it's but it but it's gonna be awesome i mean being able to read through the entirety of Beowulf in the original um which uh is really like i mean that's why you learn anglo saxon right um so um then okay, uh, the mythologies of love and sex, which I mentioned last time, which is uh, our our, uh, uh, our our new class this semester, and this is really new uh, in a bunch of ways. One of the newest things about this class uh, is that it um, uh, it it features literature from outside the Middle Ages, like oh, fuck, crazy, right? Uh, so you know, it, it basically this class is looking at uh, you know questions like so um why do people get married at the end of Jane Austen novels for instance like why is that a thing right when how did that come to be a thing how do we get to where we are now you know how did we get to the current status of friendship versus sexual love and the role of sexual love in our culture Um, how did that grow where did that come from um, really fascinating questions. There's, you know, love and love stories are one of those things that everybody kind of takes for granted. You know, like, well, given that there has to be a love interest in a movie, right? Uh, you know, again, given that, like, at the end of a comedy, everybody gets married. Um, why? Why? Why should that be? That's not always the case. It hasn't always been the case. What, you know, wh- wh- why is that? Um, and so ultimately, those are some of the questions that... Um, That this course is examining, Uh, it sort of starts with kind of an inklings framework that is, you know, is working with, uh, especially with C.S. Lewis's *The Four Loves* is the book that's kind of at the core of this class. Um, Though, of course, it it, uh, thinks about Tolkien quite a bit too. But from there, really goes through classical literature, uh, the medieval courtly love tradition. Uh, You'll do Shakespeare. You'll do Jane Austen. uh, You know, all the way up through a whole bunch of modern films. I mean, just to show you how cool this class is. In week one, you're required. Uh, your required reading for week one is Tolkien's Mythopoeia, Lewis's *The Four Loves*, Genesis one through three, and the Princess Bride film. So, like, there you are, right? And that's that's kind of that's kind of a glimpse of this class. So, anyway, this uh, this course should be just a really remarkable uh, opportunity. And then, of course, the Inklings and in Science Fiction class that I mentioned before as well. Uh, so um this is again with uh douglas anderson uh just, a, just an amazing amazing scholar um going through again you can so you can read more about uh the different works you're going to read look at the the the, the week by week th- um uh run through so anyway these are the courses that we're offering just you know we'll uh I'll, I'll announce again later on when they open up uh for registration but i wanted to make sure you were aware of those and could look at those uh at uh at your own convenience. So, all right, let's uh, jump straight in because I've got over twenty slides again, and I'm keen to get to them. Let us begin with Mr. Swales. We almost got through everything last time. I got I got through all the stuff about uh, about Dracula that I wanted to get through, and then we got we talked about the introduction of Renfield there in chapter five, in chapters five, th- uh, six, and seven, really. Or no, sorry, five and six last time. Um, and then I wanted to do Mr. Swales, and we didn't get to Mr. Swales, but we got to do some justice to mr swales now the one thing i I, I can promise i won't do justice to for mr swales uh is his accent I, I, i could i can't i'm not even gonna try um so um uh uh just uh just imagine this is in a sort of northern english accent which i love but can't do it be all full talk, lock, stock, and barrel. That's what it be, and nout else. These bands and wafts and bogosts and bargests and boggles and all, and them is only fit to set bairns and dizzy women a Belderin'. They be naught but air blebs. Uh, by the way, that's, I think, my favorite insult uh, from Mr. Swales, uh, And I think that really, again, it's one of those things that really should be brought back into currency, right? Um... Uh, you know, like uh, you're you're not, but or you know, you're not, but an airbleb is uh, is really. I mean, I think that's um, that's uh, yeah. And Jana, don't worry, I'm not going to try a Dutch accent. I can't do a Dutch accent later. Wouldn't even attempt it. I'm just going to read Miss Doctor Van Helsing as he's written. For which I can make no apologies. I didn't write it, but there he is. Uh, anyway, okay. They be nout but air blebs they and all grims and signs and warnins be all invented by parsons and illsome buke bodies and railway touters to skeer and scunner halflands and to get folks to do something that they don't other incline to it makes me ireful to think of them why it's why it's them that not content with printin lies on paper and preachin them out a pulpits does want to be cuttin them on the tombstones. Look here all round you, on what whate'er ye will. All of them steens, holding up their heads as well as they can out of their pride, is a cant, simply tumbling down with the weight of the lies wrote on em. Here lies the body, or sacred to the memory, wrote on all of them. Yet in, yet in nigh half of them there bein' no bodies at all, and the memories of them bein' cared a pinch of snuff about, much less sacred." Lies, all of them. Nothing but lies of one kind or another. My gog! But it'll be a quieter scouterment at the day of judgment when they come tumbling up in their death skarks, all jupe together and trying to drag their tombstones with them to prove how good they was. Some of them trembling and dithering with their hands that dozened and slippy from lying in the sea that they can't even get their grub of them. Okay, um. What do you notice here? What do we get from Mr. Swales? Now, again, please don't ask me to explain every expression. I I, I don't understand half of this. That is, if I were to try to try to go word by word and explain what all of it means, I'm not sure I can. Um, that Mr. Sw- <laughs> Mr. T- I, I mean, I think I made this reference before. Uh, reading Mr. Swales's dialogue uh, to me is very much like Alice reading Jabberwocky, right? In uh, through the Looking Glass, to which he says, It seems to fill my head with ideas, but I'm not quite sure what they are. Um, what's he saying here, though? We can get the gist of what he's saying, right? Even if we don't understand even a, a, a fair a fair bunch of the words, yet nevertheless we can certainly understand what he's saying. What, what he's talking about lies, right? <laughs> right exactly. And James lebach says lies, darn lies and tombstones. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, so he, he, he is, uh, Penny, very interested in ghosts and spirits, right? Um, though he's interested in debunking them, right? He doesn't think anything of those. We, uh, we've got we to gotta go back here. Those are the air blebs. Um, that is, those are the things that are now to put air blebs, right? Grims and signs and warnings. So not only just spirits themselves, Right. Those are the Bogosts and bargests and boggles, right? Those, are the, you know, the, the actual spirits. Uh, th- those, those are just—they're—they're—they're they're, they're, they're only fit to set barons and dizzy women a beldar in, right? That's—that's—they're they're, just—they're not real, right? And grims and signs and warnings also, right? So if there's like a portent or a, you know, and these are things. So notice what he says. There are basically two people who uh, promote the idea of these Grimm's and signs and warnings, right, who talk about these spirits and everything. Those are, A, Parsons, right? And two, well, I guess it's uh, three... I'm not sure what an illsom book body really is, so I can't really count that as a cat. If anyone can explain what a book body is, uh, that would be helpful. But a railway touter I can understand, right? Because he's also talking about trippers, right? And we we, we, we we get several references to that in Whitby, that it's a tourist spot, right? Um so 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 Parsons and people that are promoting local tourism; those are the two people who talks about who talk about Grimm's and signs and warnings, right? Um, and that's why when he talks about why it is that they do it, right? Um, uh, let's see. Uh, uh, oh yes, uh, to uh, to get folks to do, uh, to to well to skier and skunner halflands, right? To uh, to uh, uh, to to startle children. That's presumably why the parsons do it, right? They tell these stories in order to frighten children into moral behavior, presumably. Um, and um, uh, and then the uh, railway touters do it to get folks to do something that they don't other inclined to. That is, go to visit this place, right? Because you know you should go visit it because there's this phenomenon right that is sometimes seen there um, now with several people making guesses at book bodies and maybe um, I'm not sure of the guesses so I, I, I anyway he's so so we see that he's not just skeptical in the way that Jonathan Harker was skeptical right he's cynical in a way that Jonathan Harker was not cynical, right? I mean, he he was kind of polite, though condescending, to the peasants, right? Mm. Who clearly believed all this stuff. But he wasn't cynical in this sense. Like, ah, uh, like, these people are only acting this way in order to manipulate me, right? That's that's a more cynical a- attitude. And that's the kind of attitude that Mr. Swales is showing, right? But also, um... Uh, though, it's it's kind of interesting in its own way, though, that there is a kind of peril, that is, he he seems to treat, like, the uh, Church of England clergy, almost like Jonathan Arker treats the Transylvanian peasants, except with less charity and, and uh, uh, benefit of the doubt, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay, by the way, several people are pointing out that book uh, is, is, is almost certainly book, which I can absolutely believe, but I'm not sure, therefore, what an illsome book body is. Like, a book body. Learned people? Maybe. I'm not convinced. It's possible. Um, I'm not sure what makes them illsome exactly. Um, you know, basically, the two leading theories among the comments that you guys are making are either a busybody um, or a scholar of some kind. Again, I'm not sure, like an ilsem scholar, um, or maybe... A I can also imagine book body in a different way. That is, people who have come to Whitby, with tourists who come to Whitby with a guidebook, right? Remember, guidebooks are really popular. Dracula has a guidebook, right? Um, uh, a Bradshaw's guide, remember, is one of the things that uh, uh, that Jonathan Harker uh, points to. So, could Mister Swales possibly be um, referring to you know tourists who come with a Bradshaw's guide in hand as possibly a as possibly a uh, a book body um anyway i don't know um but uh but anyway, I, i'm i don't want to get bogged down and I, it, mr swales the speech of Mr. Swales, I mean, I, I, I gotta think, like, if Tolkien were reading this book, he would be just, like, th- this would be his favorite part. Like, he would spend his entire time picking apart the, like, dialectical elements in Mr. Swales' speech. Like, there's just no question this would be, like, the whole point of Tolkien's reading of Dracula. But, but I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to go there. I, I, I don't want to get too bogged down on this. Um, what about the dead? What is it, what is it, what is his emphasis about The dead? We talked about, right, lies and tombstones, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but yeah, Karita, exactly. The, the, the sort of general irreverence that he shows towards the dead, right? Um, that he is... Because um, there are like two different categories of lies that he points to on the tombstones. One, and the most simple one, is the fact that they all say things like, here lies the body, right? When he's, when he's And he points out how intrinsic, like, you don't even have to know, as he of course does know, having lived here for a really long time, he does know the story behind most of the tombstones that are there. Um, but, he, but even without the inside information, you can tell, and he points out those, right? The ones that say, here lies the body of this person who was drowned really far away at sea. And he's like... You know, how exactly did they fish out his body in order to bring it back here to bury it, right? That's obviously, manifestly, a lie. So, that's one, the simplest kind of lie, right? But the other kind of lie are those where uh, people are uh, made out to be better than they are, right? Yes, exactly, Philip. The ones that are seeking respectability for the dead or who are speaking with reverence, even if an insincere reverence, for the dead. Um, you know, sacred to the memory and uh, um, and, uh, and, and and whatever. Um, but um, uh, anyway, so he doesn't doesn't uh, have any patience for those kinds of lies either, right? Um, one small effect of this speech is that you know there are a lot of ways in which. Bram Stoker kind of gets, and remember, we don't know anything about vampires, right? As we're reading this, we have no idea. The very concept of, like, the walking dead is is a strange alien concept, right? So notice how even just in an indirect way, through Mr. Swales' talk here, he's kind of, uh, Stoker's kind of planting the seeds of things like empty tombs, absent corpses, right? Uh, you know, those, 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 that concept is being brought in this indirect and not directly related way. It's not, you know, Mr. Swales not saying that any of these uh people are undead, of course. Um but um anyway, so um uh, uh, But it's the attitude towards death, which I think is is the one that I would particularly other than the sort of his general cynicism which is a a harder reaction than we've seen in a in a in a book where already this question of what are you willing to believe right was brought up for us in the epigraph at the beginning of the book before chapter 1 and of course we see Jonathan in chapter 1 going through we went through in some detail Jonathan's sort of journey towards Credulousness, right? His his journey towards belief in what he sees and how his reason led him to that. Um, in Mister Swale, we see a Mister Swale's we see a hardened resistance to believing strange things that other people tell him, right, um, about ghost stories and uh, and and these other things. Um, yeah, Gerald. Good. Corpses dragging their tombstones is another image we get from this passage. Yeah. So uh, uh, now, of course, that's after the resurrection. Right, that's uh, you know he he's talking about the day of judgment, uh, and suggests that at the day of judgment, when all of these people are, are rising from the dead, are being raised from the dead, and coming to the uh, you know before the throne of God for judgment, that they're going to try to bring their tombstones with them as evidence, uh, you know, to be taken evidence for how good they was. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, okay. Look at his his last speech to Mina. I'm afraid, my dearie, that I must have shocked you by all the wicked things I've been saying about the dead and such like for weeks past, but I didn't mean them, and I want you to remember that when I'm gone. We odd folks that be daffled and with one foot abaft the crockall don't altogether like to think of it, and we don't want to feel scart of it, and that's why I've took to making light of it, so that I'd cheer my own heart up a bit. But, Lord love ye, miss, I ain't afraid o' dyin' not a bit. Only I don't want to die if I can help it. My time must be nigh at hand now, for I be odd, and a hundred years is too much for any man to expect, and I'm so nigh it that the odd man is already wetting his scythe. Ye see, I can't get out of the habit o' caffin' about it all at once. The chaffs will wag as they be used to. Some day soon, the angel of death will sound his trumpet for me. But don't ye dole and greet me, dearie, for he saw that I was crying. If you should come, if he should come this very night, I'd not refuse to answer his call. For life be, after all, only a waitin' for something else than what we're doin'. And death be all that we can rightly depend on. But I'm content. If it's for if it's comin' to me, my dearie, sorry, yeah, but uh, but I'm content. For it's comin' to me, my dearie, and comin' quick. It may be comin' while we be lookin' and wonderin'. Maybe it's in that wind out over the sea that's bringin' with it loss and wreck and sore distress and sad hearts. Look, look! He cried suddenly. There's something in that wind and in the host beyond that looks and that sounds and looks and tastes and smells like death. It's in the air. I feel it coming. Lord, like, make me answer cheerful when my call comes. He held up his arms devoutly and raised his hat. His mouth moved as though he were praying. Okay. Um, Jordan Sunderland asks, Why would Mina make his accent uh, in her journal? For two reasons. Uh, first, she has said that she's going to try to take down everything as, as as close to exactly as she heard it as she possibly can. And second, because she admits that she doesn't understand half of what he says either. So she just tries to write it down as she remembers it, uh, possibly in order to figure it out uh, later on. And she is, as James points out, using shorthand. Um, she's using the shorthand, uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, you know, not just a, a system of notes, but you remember when Jonathan's shorthand letter to Mina was intercepted by Dracula. He couldn't read it, right? He couldn't make anything of it. It's the it's the it's the shorthand symbols. Both Jonathan and Mina, um, right, in, uh, in 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 shorthand symbols. But anyway, okay. So what do we see here? Um, we see here, of course, his sort of more honest response to death, right? You know that is. So why does he talk like he did I was talking before? Why is he so cynical? Why does he talk that way? And his answer to that question is that he's fighting against the fear of death. He doesn't want to be afraid of dying. Um, remember John, uh, you know Jonathan Harker was taking refuge in, 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 in reason and careful observation, right to try to keep himself from going mad. We see Mr. Swales taking refuge in comedy right, Um, in joking and harsh talk um, to try to not allow himself to be afraid of death. Death is coming. It's the one thing that we can count on, right? Notice, therefore, that that's a thing that Mr. Swales and Renfield have in common, right? Both Mr. Swales and Renfield are confronting the onset of death, Mr. Swales is confronting it much more nearly, right? As he's almost 100 years old, uh, whereas Renfield is still under 60. Um, but yet both of them are facing the fact that there's only one thing you can certainly count on, and that is death, right? One of these two gentlemen seeks to increase and prolong his life in, an, in, a, in the desire to stave off death. The other tries to joke away his own fear of death and speak lightly. So You can see why... He speaks irreverently of the dead, right um, he's trying to strip death of that sort of hushed, reverent tone that people use when they speak of death and the dead because that that would make him more afraid right but he tells her he's not he's not really afraid to die he knows he's gonna die and you know but i I, I love the I love the the sort of um Simple uh, honesty of that. uh, I ain't afraid of dying, not a bit. Only I don't want to die if I can help it. Right? Um, You know he's not eager for death, but he, um, um, you know, he is afraid. But you know, Lord, Lord, make me my answer willing when when my call comes. He says. That is to say, we see in the end how unskeptical he actually is. Right? Jonathan Harker started off. With a, from a skeptical standpoint, right, with skeptical assumptions and presumptions, and he came through the course of his experience to face reality. Mister Swales' skepticism is just a front, right? I, I mean, here in this convers, in this second conversation that we get from him, he waxes downright mystical, right? Um, and of course, he's perfectly right because, as several of you have pointed out, um, he is in fact quite actively. And quite accurately, prophetic, when he says there's something in that wind and in the host beyond—I don't know what host is either—beyond um, that sounds, looks, and tastes and smells like death. It's in the air. I feel it coming. That's the storm. That Dracula is—that is bringing Dracula to the to the to the shore. I mean, it's not—it's not just generally like within a few days, right? That he—he's I mean, looking out to sea. And the wind that is blowing on his face is the wind that is blowing Dracula's ship to shore that night, and will be there. So, yeah, his uh, his actual perception, his, his you know, you call it prophetic, uh, if you like, but his insight into what is coming and what's happening, his sense, and, well, sense is, I should say, sounds, looks, tastes, and smells like death, right? Um, can't quite feel it yet, but everything else, right? He can... Uh, he can He can sense it. Um, So, Tomas, is he talking about his own death, or can he feel the presence of the Count approaching? Well, in his case, both, right? Does this mean that he actually perceives the Count in some way? That seems likely, under the circumstances. And we'll come back to that, because it's one of the things that we're going to be looking at tonight, is how exactly that works. Um, But Mr. Swales, in fact, gives us our first hint is the first one that we see who seems to have some kind of sense. I'm hesitant to call it prophecy. And the reason I'm hesitant to call it prophecy is that it seems to me more a sense of perception than of foreknowledge, right? Um, I don't think that some presentiment of the future, some prescient memory is given to him here. Um, I think that he is perceiving something and that to me is and that's I get that from this language the sounds looks tastes, and smells like death right he he can he can sense the death in the air and again that air is in fact the air that is blowing Dracula right now Dracula is in range and coming into harbor uh, this very evening so if he is somehow perceiving it um, you know why not it certainly seems like uh, he might do so. Um, but uh, but he's our first, right? He's the first one. We'll, we'll, we'll see this again in Renfield, right? We'll talk about this again with Lucy, but it's Mr. Swales that we see who seems to have some kind of a, uh, some kind of a perception. Um, again, not a not, I think, a presentiment, but a perception of Dracula coming uh, from, a di- from, from a distance. Um, d- notice for a second. Notice for a second the position that Stoker has put us in as readers, right? We know he's right, right. We know it when he says like death is coming in this wind. You know, there's something that that looks as if like, I feel it coming, right? You know, that I feel death. Come. We know death is coming, right? I and mean, we don't know necessarily that he's going to die. But when he says, like, you know, I don't know what it is, but there's something in this wind that smells like death. We're all like, yes, there's something that's like death behind that wind. We know Dracula's on his way. We don't yet know at this point, which is, as if I recall, near the end of chapter uh, six, that he's going to be coming that night. But we know he's been on the way, right? Um, it shouldn't it shouldn't surprise us to learn it. And as soon as we get there in the next chapter, it's uh, it's confirmed, right? And yes, several of you are pointing out, of course, since he is close to death, um, you know, with his dying eyes, um, he can see death coming. But I don't think death is quite so proximate as that. That is to say, um, people who have uh, uh, sort of visions or presentiments that are associated with the onset of death, it's usually not, hes not going to die for another 36 hours. Or so he says. Body won't be found for thirty six hours. It might not be any more than twenty four before he actually kicks it. Um, but he's not going to die tonight. Uh, so uh, that would be a little bit unusual. Like I'm going to die the day after tomorrow. I'm having a presentiment with the eyes of death. That's usually not. I mean, that would be a particularly uh, advanced. Um, he would uh, have uh, you know sort of uh, some. He'd be extraordinarily long-sighted with the eyes of death, uh, if that were the case, I would think. Mina raises that phrase, of course, right? But she's referring to what he's seeing in the moment of his death, right? When he dies with a look of terror upon his face, which we will return to later on. Um, but again, I think there's... We, we get... The language here, again, is not the language of foretelling. It's the language of perception, and since we have a lot of other precedents for this, or rather, we soon collect lots of other precedents for this. Um, that seems to me to be the most, to be the simplest and and, and clearest way to read that. But we'll come back to that. Um, let's move on to that. There, that that was just that that was just our 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 sort of foretaste. I wanted to make sure that we talked about Mr. Swales. Um, but there are three major topics I want to hit on tonight in these three chapters that we uh, read for tonight. The first is the fateful voyage of the Demeter, right? The ship from Varna um, that Dracula is, uh, is uh, traveling on. And I want to look at that closely and in chronological order. That is not as it's presented in the book, but in, in the chronological order of the actual voyage itself, right? Um, then I want to go back to Renfield and look at what's going on with Renfield, and then I want to end with Lucy and what's happening with Lucy. Now, there are two things that we're going to be doing throughout class tonight, okay? Two things that we're going to focus on in our discussion. And so I want you to be thinking about both. Whenever I put up a slide for the whole rest of the class, I want you to be thinking about both of these two things. One, do we learn anything new about Dracula here? Again, remember, we are trying to clear our minds about all of our pre, uh, you know, preconceptions that we got, you know from other vampire stories and other vampire films and and whatever, trying to free our minds about what exactly are the strengths, abilities, liabilities, and limitations of vampires right so We still have to learn all of this stuff from scratch. We can't take any of that stuff for granted. So we learned a bunch of things, of course, in the first four chapters with Jonathan in Transylvania, but there's a lot that we still didn't learn and that we learn in these chapters here. So again, one thing that I want to do, and again, this is so, uh, 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 you know, open season on observations on this subject on every single slide we do for the rest of class. Is there anything about the nature of vampires that we learn, things that Dracula can or can't do? second thing that I want to do is a really fun game which I feel that this book really, I was going to say invites us to play, but I think it's stronger than that. Um, somewhere Between Invite and Compels really, really uh, requests us uh, to play this game. Um, and the game is, is called What Really Happened? Right. Um, That is, again, remember how Stoker has positioned us since we were with Jonathan and we went through with Jonathan that whole awakening that Jonathan experiences. Right. Perhaps we, especially if we were 1897 readers. Right. Uh, you know, picking up this book, we would probably be right along with Jonathan with being resistant to this kind of thing. And then, of course, as we, you know, our eyes are being opened as Jonathan's eyes are being opened uh, to the horrible, inexplicable things that are happening to him in Castle Dracula. But now we go back to England and everybody else is at least as ignorant as Jonathan was back at the beginning of chapter one, but we're not, right? Not only do we now have our eyes been opened to the fact that this stuff happens, right? But we also know some simple facts in advance, right? That is to say, we know who Dracula is. We know what his plans are, to at least to some extent, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, it incites conjecture, Tom. That's a great way to think about it, absolutely. Um, but anyway, so, okay. What it enables us to do, or rather, Tom, to use your wonderful verb, what it incites us to do, uh, that's C-I-T-E, insight, um, What it incites us to do, hopefully insightfully, right, Tom, is um, to see what's actually going... We know the real story. We can figure out the real story, right? Nobody else in the book understands what is really going on, right? But we do, or at least we can if we pay attention. And sometimes we have to do a little bit of legwork to put this stuff together, and I've tried to... Uh, I, I do my humble part in assisting with that legwork and putting together my slides. so we can, and, the, and it's one of the things that I've done to try to put these together in a particular order to help us piece together the stories um, in a way which sometimes it's a little bit harder to do the way that they're kind of scattered around uh, in the book. But So, so, so the three stories I want to look at. Um, what's going on with Dracula on the ship? What's going on with Renfield? And then what's going on with Lucy? So let's start with the Demeter as it leaves from Varna. This from the captain's log uh, on the Demeter, or the Demeter, or whatever. On 13 July, past Cape Mattapan, crew dissatisfied about something, seemed scared, but would not speak out. On 14 July, was somewhat anxious about crew, men all steady fellows who sailed with me before. Mate could not make out what was wrong. They only told him there was something, and crossed themselves. Mate lost temper with one of them that day and struck him. Expected fierce quarrel, but all was quiet. On 16 July, mate reported in the morning that one of crew, Petrovsky, was missing. Could not account for it. Took larboard watch, eight bells last night, was relieved by Abramov, but did not go to bunk. Men more downcast than ever. All said they expected something of the kind, but would not say more than there was something aboard. Mate, getting very impatient with them, feared some trouble ahead. Okay as should surprise nobody at this point. The peasants know what's going on, right? I mean, there's there seems to be clearly a class distinction between the captain of the ship and the crew, right? They are, li- so, but like the, you know, the Romanian and Transylvanian peasants that uh, uh, that Jonathan was interacting with, the crew knows what's up, right? Um, and yeah, Nancy, isn't it interesting how they don't like to talk about Dracula explicitly? Um, there's just that italicized something right now what are the what are explanations for this one explanation is that they know what it is if not who right now the people in transylvania knew who right uh, they knew both who and what um presumably these people in varna right which is in the black sea um in bulgaria i think um but uh, anyway, so that presumably these people don't know Count Dracula personally, right? By name, it's not like they'd be like, "It's Dracula of Transylvania." I don't su- see any reason uh, to suspect that that's the case. Um, but but they seem to have some sense of what it is. But there seem again, there seem to me to... Uh, yeah, several. You're uh, saying it's like he's like a he who must not be named. Sort of. Yeah. Either there's some actual restraint upon them in that way, like maybe they do fear that if they name it, that it'll, it'll like, cure them or something and, and seek them out to kill them or something. Um, that does seem possible. Exactly, as Carolyn says, when you name the evil, you give it power. Possibly. Possibly. But it's also possible that, that now, where is Dracula? What's going on here? We need to keep this in mind. Where's, where's Dracula? Where is he? Yeah, Nick, good. It's not called someone. It's something, right? Yes, Dracula is sealed in a box. What kind of box? What kind of box is Dracula in? We learned about this. I'm, by the way, I'm going to be giving you lots of these kinds of quizzes. Um, your reading assignments each week are really quite short. Right? We're only reading, what, like 30 pages at a time per week? right? I mean, I, I'm in my Modern Fantasy II class right now, we're doing uh, uh, Patrick Rothfuss's Name of the Wind, and they had 300 pages of reading this week. So, you know, come on now. 30 pages, I expect you to read very carefully. He's in a box full of dirt. Yes, but what kind of box? What kind of box? This is important. What's the box made of, and how does it close? Is he in a coffin? No, yes, exactly, good, good. Several of you hit on the, on the important point. It is a wooden box that is nailed shut. In fact, the word that the first mate will later use is screwed shut, right? Um, these are normal wooden boxes. So he is nailed inside a box. This is he's is not a coffin that he like can open up and dramatically rise out of, right? So there's no question of like one day, you know, like as they're loading up, they're like, oh, there's a coffin, and I think the dude in here is alive. Nothing like that. These are just wooden boxes that are that are invoiced as clay, right? So this they're 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 boxes of dirt. So one thing, we've learned something about vampires that we didn't know before, right? What do we learn? What do we like? Yes, Tom, he can disembody himself. Apparently, he is able to get in and out of a box which is nailed shut without there being any evidence of his passage. Right? He can just emerge and re-enter a sealed wooden box. That's, an, that's a thing we didn't know before. We, Jonathan never saw him do anything. John, Jonathan saw him uh, uh, crawl headfirst down a wall and uh, do several other rather remarkable things, but he never saw him do this. Whether he's uh, uh, created, as you say, bam thing, right? Whether this is teleportation or some other way, we don't know. But it's clear. He's not opening it and closing it again. We know he's really strong, right? So presumably he could force the nailed box open if he wanted to, but that's not what he's doing, right? Uh, we know that that's not what he's doing because after he has emerged in order to kill one or two of the crew ma- uh, crew uh, members, they search all the boxes and they don't, for instance, find a box with the you know that's been unnailed anyway. Somebody else would have to nail it back in. You know, so clearly, he's able to get into and out of the boxes through the lid, through the cracks around the lid, or something, right? Um, okay, so. That's one thing that we've learned about Dracula. But again, it also suggests <clears throat> something about the crew members' suspicions and why they're saying something. I rather suspect that they merely have some kind of... Se- that. What is tipping them off to this is just pure creep factor, right? They have an uneasy feeling that something is aboard. Right, they're like, I feel like I'm on a haunted ship. Do you feel like you're on a haunted ship? Like there is something seriously, supernaturally weird on this ship right now. Seems to be what's going on with the crew, to the extent that when one of them dies, right, one of them disappears, they're like, ah, saw that coming. Right, I mean, that's how creeped out they are. This is not just like I'm vaguely unsettled, right? Um, so so yes, Creedy he gives off bad. Vibes, right? <laughs> very, very bad vibes. Um, so, okay. So th- that's the one thing. So, th- and the fact that they pick up on, and whereas the captain is like, whoosh, he has no clue, right? Absolutely no idea. If the crew weren't upset, he would be going along. He, I mean, his his previous entries, right, are like, all is well, went through customs, all fine, right? Um, there's um, there's no. There's no problem here, but of course they can perceive it. Now, 2 August, midnight. Woke up from few minutes sleep by hearing a cry seemingly outside my port. Could see nothing in fog. Rushed on deck and ran against mate. Tells me he heard cry and ran, but no sign of men on watch. One more gone. Lord, help us. Mate says we must be past the Straits of Dover, as in a moment of fog lifting he saw North Foreland, just as he heard the man cry out. If so, we are now off in the North Sea, and only God can guide us in the fog, which seems to move with us, and God seems to have deserted us. (laughs) Amber says, who even ships big boxes of clay? Rich people, apparently. I mean, you know, yeah, exactly. No idea. Um... Yeah, Karina, I noticed that too. Being around va- vampires is correlated with an increase in, in, in prayerfulness. Yeah. Um, no, I, I noticed that parallel in the captain's language with Jonathan's language as well, right? You know, great god, merciful god. Jonathan Harker did a lot of that kind of talk as time went on, right? Um, great increase in piety as confrontation of this scary, spooky supernatural um, uh, goes up. Um... Yes, Jennifer, very good. Jennifer Miner is correct in pointing out we have a new thing, right? Nick points it out too. What's the new thing that we learn about vampires? Fog, absolutely, the fog. Um, this is a very uncanny fog, right? It's not just, I mean, fog in, on, in the sea off England doesn't seem that strange, but the fog seems to travel with them. Right, They have been surrounded by fog since they came up. You know, So they, they sailed from the Black Sea out right through, uh, through the Dardanelles, through the Strait of Gibraltar, and then up around Spain and France, and then through the English Channel and up into the North Sea. Whitby is up on the, uh, on the east coast um, of northern England. Um, so they're so sailing off in the North Sea now. And they've been encased in fog... Since they came into sight of land, um, yeah. And Philip, you're right. It's so thick, it's so thick that they can't tell where they are. They cannot steer. They cannot navigate. Right? They've got no radar. Right? This is a this is a wooden sailing ship that they are sailing. Um, they they rely on you know the measurements they can take and their view of of land and stars in order to navigate. And they can't. It's only just this one glimpse that the mate happens to catch that he even knows what part of the world they're in, right? Um So um, So what's going on? Dracula or or rather, what do you see what this suggests? Yes, Dracula can make fog that's a big deal, right? Um, yes, he makes strange fun, but notice he's also controlling the wind and steering the ship. Yes, exactly. He's it's The route that the ship is taking is, I think it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Way too precise to be a coincidence, right? I mean, just a random wind blowing a ship blind in a fog is not going to go through the English Channel and up and around through the North Sea and 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 around up to Whitby, right? This is just not going to happen. The captain, them, I mean, the captain is really worried about um, uh, that. That they're gonna that they're gonna wreck. I mean, he's he's he he, he thinks this is his chief concern here, right? Um yeah, as Philip says, uh, apparently uh um not only God can guide them in the fog, yeah there's, a, there's some there's some irony there, right, Philip, right he's saying uh, only God can guide us in the fog, not only God right, also possibly the demonic guy can also manage that, apparently, so Dracula is navigating the ship and steering it. how is he steering it well again. He's not touched the helm, right? He's not literally steering the ship. He's steering the ship with the wind, right? Because it's just, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sailing ship, right? It's running before the wind. So he, he seems to be controlling the wind and controlling the fog and navigating the ship and taking it where he wants it to go, right? Now, the captain doesn't think that this is particularly strange because he doesn't know what's happening. I mean, he doesn't even know where they are. He thinks they're just adrift. Um, But, of course, uh, it turns out that's not exactly the case. Um, Now, notice, um, by the way, uh, uh, what happened with that um, the sailor who vanished at the beginning of this passage? What happened to him? careful. Does Dracula bite him? I don't think so. I think the evidence is that he jumps overboard. Because of the cry. The captain hears a cry outside his port. The other ones who vanish, vanish silently. Um, and uh, and so the fact that, I mean, all of their bodies apparently end up overboard, that that, um, um, so yeah, I mean, his corpse is definitely in the sea. Um, but it seems like we don't, it's not 100% sure, but it seems to me most likely that that sailor, that that sailor escaped from Dracula. Um, but we'll, we'll, um, we'll look at, at more examples of this. Um, but here, Captain Owen just hears that one cry, um, but I think it's, um, it's, it's, it seems to me likeliest, based on the other things that we see, that that, that that one jumped of his own free will. Choosing, like Jonathan, remember, was going to choose, that it would be better to die at the foot of the cliff, uh, than to wait to be, uh, you know, bitten and is going to happen to him, um, by the, uh, by the women, um. Now, James Stevens asks a great question. The three women materialized out of motes of dust in the moonlight. Right, James, a passage which we didn't talk about last time, and I was kicking myself for leaving that one out, because it's an important one for that reason. Um says, is it possible that Dracula is the fog? Um, this is a little fuzzy. I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is that it's still foggy when Dracula appears to be on the ship, you know, on the deck in corporeal... Form, um, so it's not quite as simple as that. I think, um, and also we will see other examples later on in the book of Dracula manipulating fog. Though we do also see him in cloudy form, like the women were materializing out of the out of the mist there. So um, he does seem to make himself into a misty, gaseous form. But that, um, but I don't think that the entire the bank of cloud that surrounds the ship can be explained that way. I think it's just too big. Um. Uh, for that, for that purposes, but um, uh, for that, for that purpose rather, yeah, yeah. Um. So Jordan asks, "Is that how he's getting out of his box by becoming a mist?" Well, we don't know for sure, but it seems likely. Um, it does seem it does seem likely. All right. More things. Three August at midnight. I went to relieve the man at the wheel, and when I got to it, found no one there. The wind was steady, and as we ran before it, there was no yawing. I did, notice how he's describing how, the, how, how cleanly the ship is running before the wind. Right? I dared not leave it, so shouted for the mate. After a few seconds, he rushed up on deck in his flannels. He looked wild-eyed and haggard, and I greatly fear his reason has given way. He came close to me and whispered hoarsely with his mouth to my ear, as though fearing the very air might hear, It is here. I know it now. On the watch last night I saw it, like a man, tall and thin and ghastly pale. It was in the bows, and looking out, I crept behind it and gave it my knife. But the knife went through it, empty as the air. And as he spoke, he took his knife and drove it savagely into space. Then he went on. But it is here, and I'll find it. It is in the hold, perhaps in one of those boxes. I'll unscrew them one by one and see. You work the helm. And with a warning look, and his finger on his lip, he went below. So, we learned another thing. Right? Yeah, knives aren't much good against vampires. Hang on a second, though. But shovels are? Remember when Jonathan confronted Dracula, when Dracula was lying on the box, the same box in which he's lying now, presumably, right, at this mo- on this day... Um, remember, because he was lying there in the box of dirt, waiting, with the lid there, waiting for you know, the, the um, Slovaks to come and nail the, the boxes shut, right? Um, Jonathan picks up the shovel, and was gonna drive it down into his neck, but then Dracula opens his eyes, right, and he gets all freaked out, with that glare of basilisk Horror, right, and uh, and so he missed and just hit Dracula in the forehead. But he this, this describes him opening a gash in Dracula's forehead with the blade of the shovel. And uh, no, I don't think it was like a silver shovel or like a sacred shovel or something like that necessarily. um Now, Carita and Jennifer are both asking. Um, was he vulnerable? Okay, and Nancy talking about too. Was he vulnerable because he's awake? Was because he, whether he's awake or not, did it have to do with the fact that he was that he was uh, sleeping or unconscious uh, before? Yeah, I don't think it's the holy shuffle of Antioch Philip. I I, I really don't. Um, I think that got it, Penny. I think you've absolutely got it. The diff- Yes, it, he was whether he was in his box or not. <clears throat> but that I think is correlation, not causality. The difference is that Jonathan found him during the day. The mate comes up behind him at night. Exactly, Mark. And we have lots of reason to think that night and day matters. How? Well, of course, the evidence of Renfield's behavior, which is highly correlated to the position of the sun. Um, so, the insubstantiality of Dracula's body... How he could uh, allow the knife just to pass right through him seems to be a thing that he can do at night, whereas in the day, his form is like, is uh, vulnerable even to shovels, presumably. Um, okay, okay. So that's an interesting thing, uh, an interesting thing that we learned. Now, note the mate thinks he knows. And what does the captain think? The captain thinks he's mad, right? Um, clearly, obviously, the mate has gone mad, right? Now, remember that both the captain and the mate were skeptical before, right? The captain was skeptical and generous. The mate was skeptical and impatient. But both of them were skeptical of the superstitious beliefs of the crew, right? Um, now, the mate says that he understands, Right? and he appears to have now switched over and he's talking like the crew used to talk. Um, Rather than concluding that the mate, you know, that, like, okay, maybe the crew and the mate know something that I don't know, right? Or maybe I should consider the possibility that all of them are right and I'm wrong rather than the fact that I'm right and all of them are wrong. Um, This still doesn't really... um, uh, this still doesn't really uh, uh uh seem to even occur to the captain right the captain shares that same point of view it seems or a similar one anyway um that jonathan harker had right that presumption of you know clearly there must be a there must be a rational explanation behind these things right even though the conclusion that he comes to is well it's kind of rational right it is nearly all over now just as I was beginning to hope that the mate would come out calmer, for I heard him knocking away at something in the hold, and work is good for him, there came up something or sorry, there came up the hatchway, a sudden startled scream which made my blood run cold, and up on the deck he came as if shot from a gun, a raging madman with his eyes rolling and his face convulsed with fear. Save me, save me," he cried, and then, looking round on the blanket of fog, his horror turned to despair, and in a steady voice he said. "'You had better come, too, Captain, before it's too late. "'He is here. "'I know the secret now. "'The sea will save me from him, and it is all that is left. "'Before I could say a word or move forward to seize him, "'he sprang on the bulwark and deliberately threw himself into the sea. "'I suppose I know the secret, too, now. "'It was this madman who had got rid of the men one by one, "'and now he has followed them himself. "'God help me! "'How am I to account for all these horrors when I get to port?' When I get to port, will that ever be yeah Tom, I love that um the uh the he and it um uh moments right that he is here, and if you go back to the um um if we if we go back for a second to the previous slide um uh, <clears throat> you know it is here, I know it now. I saw it like a man, um, but it's here and I'll find it, right? And then, um, you know, uh, uh, save me. He is there. I know the secret now. Uh, The sea will save me from him, right? Um, You know, I saw it like a man. You know, it is here. I know it now. I saw it, right? So, yeah, so we see that we see the shift from it to him. So. Two questions. Well, so several of you are pointing out, of course, the uh, the first mate was Romanian. Would he have heard of him? Apparently not, right? <clears throat> we see that the it was the first mate, despite the fact of being Romanian, was more intolerant of the superstitions of the crew than anybody else, right? The, the captain was at least tolerant, even if he didn't share them, he was tolerant, right? The mate was intolerant of them. So, again, it seems to be a, a, well, a class thing? I, I, I'm not sure. It seems, probably, like a class thing. Um... But um But James, you're right, the captain does still find a rational explanation, right? Um, there are two things that he could believe that the rest of them were correct all along: that the mate has proven that there is a monster in the hold in one of those boxes, that it killed it, he killed. You know, the, this thing which is both he and it, right, uh, killed all of the rest of the men, and now he, the captain, is alone with it in the ship, right? Either that or the mate was mad and he killed everybody himself, right? And that's the conclusion that the captain kind of latches on to, right? Um, notice uh, that um, the the we, of course the, the mate we see the mate throwing himself into the sea rather than uh succumbing to Dracula. I suspect a bunch of the crew threw themselves into the sea um i don't know how many of them Dracula actually got uh because of course we see their despair right their their minds are made up to the worst um so I, I think a bunch of them probably chose uh blue water rather than rather than uh in, in than 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 Dracula. um Now, James, you're right. Um, The mate does clearly recognize, at least, well, I would say a connection between Dracula and the fog, right? He's looking around at the fog in horror, right? Um, Yeah, (laughs) you're right, Tom. They literally are between the devil and the deep blue sea. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, By the way, what else do we learn about the Count here? So the mate goes down and he, he's knocking the boxes around, right? He's prying open screwed or nailed shut boxes. And he obviously finds the one that the count is lying in, right? And so he opens it and sees it. Why does he respond this way? Why does he scream? I mean, he went down there looking for him. He knows what he looks like, saw him on deck the night before, right? and he goes to i mean it, the whole point it's not like he suddenly comes across him and is like oh a person right he went down looking for a person right with his knife ready right i'll find it i'll unscrew them one by one right it's here i'll find it he went down he knew what he looked for and he went down looking for it and he found it but when he finds it him he screams and comes running up saying save me save me right um James, it does suggest to me that he had a similar kind of experience that Harker did. Remember, Harker's final confrontation with Dracula, right? I mean, Jonathan is freaked out by the fact that Dracula has visibly de-aged, right? He's younger, Um he's got fresh blood on his mouth and chin, and his hair, which was white, is now gray. Um, so, I mean, he's grown younger that's freakish the fact that he seems there seems to be a, a sh- there's a, a shocking sense of correlation right even causality between the blood uh, that Dracula has apparently been consuming and uh, and the youth which he has gained so he's already grossed out freaked out but remember it's post being grossed out and freaked out by those things that he picks up the shovel and is still gonna off the thing right uh, uh, uh armed with his shovel, Jonathan Harker is kind of a dude right uh, i, I, I I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Jonathan Harker so anyway so Jonathan Harker is still gonna is still gonna take a shovel to the guy right after he's freaked out this way, but remember it's that glare that he has right he's um uh, he seems to have some kind of I don't know. I don't don't want to go too far here. I'm tempted to say uh, some kind of of mental control or something, but I don't want to go further than the warrant of the text here. Um, Jonathan feels the gaze of Dracula like some kind of blow. Um, There does seem to be some kind of manipulation. James is, of course, recalling the peasants, what is it, is this the sign, right, holding up the, the sign against the evil eye, right? Dracula seems to have something, kind of like the evil eye, actually, right? Um, and I wonder if that's, you know, if has uncorked that, right, when uh, the mate finds him, and he just, um, uh, and he just over, he, and the mate is just overwhelmed, right, and and comes screaming up in terror. Um, his words about, um, I know the secret now, right? It's like, well, dude, didn't you didn't you know the truth before? I thought he already knew the truth, right? You saw him again uh last night. But I think that perhaps cuz it could have been a ghost, right? Could have been a ghost. Um when you know his knife went through it and everything. Anyway, but now, you know, and maybe maybe this is where the mates being Romanian comes in, right? Maybe he knows, like, oh, vampire, right? I'm out of here, right? Straight into the drink with me. Right? Yeah, Tom Ilman says, It's like the gaze of a dragon. Wait, Dragon, Draghool. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Yeah, why not? Why not? Um Okay. More. More. More from the captain. Four August. Still fog, which the sunrise cannot pierce. I know there is sunrise because I am a sailor. Why else I know not. Footnote. The awareness of the fact of the moment of the dawning of the day, that there is some kind of spiritual impact of the transfer from night to day that happens at the moment of dawn, which is perceptible by people who are used to perceiving it. Close footnote. I dared not go below. I dared not leave the helm, so here all night I stayed, and in the dimness of the night I saw it, him. God forgive me, but the mate was right to jump overboard. It was better to die like a man, to die like a sailor in blue water no man can object. But I am captain, and I must not leave my ship. But I shall baffle this fiend or monster, for I shall tie my hands to the wheel when my strength begins to fail, and along with them I shall tie that which he, it, dare not touch.' And then, come good wind or foul, I shall save my soul and my honor as a captain. I am growing weaker, and the night is coming on. If he can look me, look me in the face again, I may not have time to act. If we are wrecked, mayhap this bottle may be found, and those who find it may understand. If not, well, then all men shall know that I have been true to my trust. God and the Blessed Virgin and the saints help a poor ignorant soul trying to do his duty." The captain's pretty cool, too. Uh, now, um, notice the he-it the, the he, thing here. Yeah, exactly, Philip. Isn't that cool, right? Notice how the mate went from it to him after he saw him down in the box, right? He called him him instead of it. Notice the captain's shift, though. I saw it. Him, he says, right? It looked like a man. But then notice he reverses himself. I shall tie that which he-it dare not tie. He makes the decision... To call in an it rather than he, I'm not going to. I'm not going to dignify him with a uh, uh, with a personal pronoun, right? And Rickle, yes, it does seem that there's something in it in the gaze, right? His that that, and that's why again I didn't want. And on the, on the strength of the previous one, I didn't want to go that far. But I think I feel more confident here. You know, when he says if he can look me in the face, I may not have time to act. The Dracula does seem to be able to exercise some kind of control, at least to have some kind of emotional, psychic impact on somebody who, who meets his gaze, right? Um, he had that impact on Jonathan. He had that impact on the first mate, it would seem. Um, the captain testifies to the fact that he he, he weakened in some way. He's afraid he's going to give in uh, to Dracula if he meets Dracula's eyes again. Um, yeah, now... Um, but But several of you are right, he does know what to do with the crucifix, right? Um, He believes, he's now gone from the most logical explanation of all these things is that the first mate went mad and killed everybody on board, to, I know, not just that this is supernatural, I know that this is demonic, and that therefore I shall be protected by the rosary and crucifix, right? And I'm going to tie it to my hands that are tied to the wheel uh, so that he, it, will not be able to... uh, Uh, to mess with me. Um, Good, good. Okay, Uh, so much for the captain who comes finally, of course, to the same place and again in much the same tone of voice and with many of the same ideas. Um, uh, It was better to die like a man. That's almost exactly what Jonathan says, that it would be better to, you know, there a man may may lie as a man, right, he said, thinking of himself at the foot of the cliff, uh, crushed. Um, but that would be better, right? Um, Arthur and, uh, yeah, a couple, were, uh, yeah, Arthur talking about the capitalizations. I think he is capitalized. I don't think, you know, Arthur's wondering if it, you know, it's sort of like people, you know, will capitalize the, the, the pronouns referring uh, to a deity. I don't think so. I think it's just like, because he doesn't know his name, right? Um, so. And I, I, think it's just kind of for emphasis, as well for emphasis, and as a, as a sort of a direct substitute for he. Its name, um, but I mean, I certainly don't think there's any of the there's any of the kind of reverence which is generally uh, implied in that sort of uh, capitalization. Um, certainly not directed towards Dracula. Um, so, okay, well. That's the last of our witnesses of the uh, cruise, so we have to rely on other witnesses for the landing. The wind suddenly... This is, of course, the uh, cutting from the daily graph, the newspaper report uh, on the uh, the sudden onset storm. The wind suddenly shifted to the northeast, and the remnant of the sea fog melted in the blast. The fog just, like, vanished. It was amazing. Then Mirabile Dictu, between the piers, leaping from wave to wave as it rushed at headlong speed, swept the strange schooner before the blast, with all sail set, and gained the safety of the harbor. The searchlight followed her, and a shudder ran through all who saw her, for lashed to the helm was a corpse with drooping head, which swung horribly to and fro at each motion of the ship. No other form could be seen on deck at all. Just think how awful that is. If you've ever been on a sailing ship, imagine how the the wheel spins around, right? And the captain's tied to the wheel, so his body's being flopped all over the place in this horrible, terrible-to-look-at fashion. No other form could be seen on deck at all. A great awe came on all as they realized that the ship, as if by a miracle, had found the harbour unsteered, save by the hand of a dead man. However, all to and by the way, I just love how um Stoker is so self indulgent with this kind of double entendre, right, this kind of dramatic irony, steered by the hand of a dead man. You see that like the wink-wink, nudge-nudge that he does to the re- We know, right? We know. Even the 1897 readers know by now, right? Uh, I mean, even though we have our time accepting and we don't really understand, we're still learning about it. Um, you know, they're like, you know, back from more like the hand of a dead than a living man, right? All the way down to uh, um, he, he does this kind of thing a lot. Anyway, okay. Um... However, all took place more quickly than it takes to write these words. The schooner paused not, but rushing across the harbor, pitched herself on that accumulation of sand and gravel washed by many tides and many storms into the southeast corner of the pier jutting, from, uh, jutting under the east cliff, known locally as Tate Hill Pier. There was, of course, a considerable concussion as the vessel drove up on the sand heap. Every spar, rope, and stay was strained, and some of the top hammer came crashing down. But strangest of all, the very instant the shore was touched, an immense dog sprang up on deck from below, as if shot up by the concussion, and running forward, jumped from the bow on the sand. Making straight for the steep cliff where the churchyard hangs over the laneway to the east pier so steeply that some of the flat tombstones, thrufsteens or throwstones, as they call them in the Whippy vernacular, actually project over where the sustaining cliff has fallen away. It disappeared in the darkness, which seemed intensified just beyond the focus of the searchlight. Okay. Um. Good. So, yes. Agreed. One thing that we learn, and this is the first time we have learned this, Dracula can transform himself into an immense dog, probably a wolf. I agree with those of you that are speculating it's probably a wolf, but not expecting a wild wolf to be on board the random ghost ship that's landing. Uh, It's not surprising that the uh, newspaper correspondent... Calls it a dog, right? As certainly that's what it would look like, and the only thing that would possibly fit the, uh, uh, you know, the sort of the image of what he would consider possibilities. Uh, Jordan, yeah, can he control darkness? It's possible. I mean, we do have the uh, darkness which seemed intensified just beyond the focus of the searchlight. There is a like a lighthouse beam shining around here, right? So um, it would be, of course, a perfectly natural phenomenon for the darkness to appear greater. You know, just outside the reach of the uh, of, of of the lighthouse's light, um, but, you know, especially when everyone's night vision is being wrecked by the lighthouse beam. Um, but it, but we can't rule out that, given with the, everything else we see, we can't rule out the fact that he actually can manipulate doc, uh, darkness in that way. Um, okay, so more, more. Okay, so yeah, we learn he can turn himself into a wall. Here's a trickier one. What do we learn about what he can't do? Notice that? Swim! <laughs> Says James. Apparently! Yes! Swim! Yeah. Swim. Cross water. Yeah. Um, now, I'm going to cheat. Just a little bit. We're going to get to it tonight, so it's not like serious cheating. Um, what will we see him turn his uh, uh, turn himself into later on? We we see him do wolf, yeah, yeah. Later on in this chapter, we'll see him we'll see him do bat, right? Which leads to the obvious question: Why didn't he just do that, right? I mean, he's got the ship, right? Why didn't he just turn into a bat and fly to Whitby, right? I mean, how hard is that? Well, there are two answers to this question, right? Yeah, a vampire, Mark, exactly. He can turn himself into a vampire. Now, see, see uh, Tom brings up an interesting parallel. I don't think this is like the eagles in Mount Doom question. Um, again, I think that this is... Uh, and, and I hope we'll see even more clearly as we go along... Um, these are questions that i feel that this book incites very deliberately we i believe very strongly based on my reading especially of the later parts of the book we are supposed to be asking these questions this book is very interested in these questions and their answers um it's uh it's it's, it's I, I know you're kidding tom but it's but it's i actually i do think it's important to address right i do think that we need a, a kind of a just I mean if you uh if you spend your whole time reading a book, a book trying to unravel what's really going on behind the scenes it's really easy to lose your way right and end up in in like a completely different so you know your own kind of private fan fiction space right this book gives a mandate I think for this but that mandate comes clearer later on um, the back could totally do it when does the Wolf um, cross. When does the wolf uh, leave? The instant the shore is touched, yes, the very instant the shore was touched, the dog springs up from the deck below. Okay. It doesn't jump across the water. It jumps straight from the boat. And, 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 and where? Where where does it jump off the boat? Small details, right? The bow. the bow. Why the bow? The bit that's beached, right? Dracula does not cross water. He waits until the boat, ship, whatever it is, touches the shore. And as soon as it touches the shore, in the form of a wolf or dog, he comes running up, jumps over the bow from ship straight onto the land that it is already touching, and takes off. Right? Um, Okay. Now, we don't have nearly enough data to make any sense of that, but it's worth noting. Right? It was nighttime. He could have flown, or it's dusk anyway, he could have flown as a bat. Goodness knows in this storm nobody would have noticed him as a bat. Right? But he doesn't do it. Now, of course, there's another reason why he doesn't just fly off as a bat and leave the ship. Why doesn't he fly off as a bat and leave the ship? Yeah, his stuff is on the ship, Arthur. Exactly, exactly. Uh, uh, he 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 doesn't want his uh, 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 his boxes of dirt uh, to go to go under. Right. Okay. Um, The correspondents are just amazed by the miracle of this, right? I mean, it is unbelievable. Because remember what's emphasized by the correspondent: It's not just that the ship comes in safely into port, right? It's not even just that the ship comes safely into port in an enormously powerful storm with all sails set, right? I mean, even before, the, remember, in, in the at the very end, if you go to the very end of, of Chapter 6, uh, the last entry of Mina's diary, which is late that afternoon, so it's just like, a, like, like an hour before Dracula's landing. And she's up there, and she's looking out to sea. And she sees the ship. She sees the Demeter from up there. And she's talking with one of, you know, with one of the, the Coast Guard people, right, who's looking out at the ship, and she's like, what? That, that, what is going on with that ship? The captain doesn't know his business at all, right? He's amazed at this ship, which is coming in with all sails set and everything, right? Um, uh, you know, it's like that... He, and he says, well, he'll we'll hear more of her before morning, right? I mean, it's like, that. that, that something, something weird is going on there, and that ship looks like it's in trouble. Um, but with all sails set, in the middle of a storm... It comes in safe to port, and and a difficult port. Remember, there's lots of, and there are dangerous reefs right there. That's why they installed the light, right? So Dracula maneuvers the ship, using the wind, presumably, to do it, as he does not touch the helm, right? Captain and crucifix lashed to helm. Um, So he's not steering in a conventional way. By blowing the wind, he guides it into port, and beaches it safely so that it does not go up against the reef and sink and bring down his boxes of dirt uh, into the deep blue sea, right? Okay. So, yeah, that's kind of amazing. And when you know what really happened, uh, as we do and the Correspondent with the Daily Gazette does not know, um, we, uh, uh, or the Daily Graph, sorry, is the paper, um, it doesn't get any less amazing, right? Um "'More. What about the dog, though? A good deal of interest was abroad concerning the dog which landed when the ship struck, and more than a few of the members of the SPCA, which is very strong in Whitby, have tried to befriend the animal. To the general disappointment, however, it was not to be found. It seems to have disappeared entirely from the town. It may be that it was frightened and made its way onto the moors, where it is still hiding in terror.' there are some who look with dread on such a possibility lest later on it should itself become a danger for it is evidently a fierce brute early this morning a large dog a half-bred mastiff belonging to a coal merchant close to tate hill pier was found dead in the roadway opposite to its master's yard it had been fighting and manifestly had had a savage opponent for its throat was torn away and its belly was slit open as if with a savage claw Nancy Fosberg, that's pretty ominous. Mastiffs are no joke. Yeah, exactly exactly. Um, okay, so let's so what happened here? Why is Dracula's first act in England a dog fight? Is he feeding on the dog? I don't think so. I don't think so. All the evidence we have shows uh, suggests that ripping out throats and slashing open bellies is not how Dracula feeds, in any form. So I don't think it was necessarily need of blood. Um, why, um... <laughs> Arthur o. Stoker making a joke at the expense of the SPCA. Um, I... I don't know. I mean, it's a little funny, though, right? I mean, the idea of the SPCA wanting to adopt, you know, the vampire in wolf form um, is a little bit funny, right? Um, But, um, uh, yeah, but it's but Carrie and Joyce and Morgan also say, hey, like he's the biggest dog in the yard, right? He's establishing dominance. He's the alpha dog in England right now probably but i think that the count is way too good a planner to be like the first thing i'm going to do is i'm going to i'm going to find a big dog and i'm going to i'm going to rip its throat out right that'll be a good way to start my conquest of england by uh, i will start one mastiff at a time probably not i mean i don't think exactly Kerry, i don't think he, i don't think he's going to prove himself i don't think he's going to feel like he needs to prove himself to the local canines um Yes, Carrie. that seems quite likely, that he, in his canine form, was challenged by the local dog. Now, remember, we have lots of evidence that dogs respond to Dracula. We've heard that already. Jonathan heard that in the carriage, right, on the way to Castle Dracula way back in Chapter 1. So, we know that the dogs howl when he's around. Now, we see his control over the wolves. Listen to them, the children of the night, right? Um, But we... Uh we've we all we know about dogs is that they howl when he's around. Um I suspect that um and Yana it's a good point. Yana says he's surprised he couldn't control the dog outright. Exactly. Exactly. Um the fact that he fought with the dog and killed the dog in a you know, conventional dog fighting kind of way suggests that A The dog attacked him, because again, I can't see Dracula seeking out a dog to to fight with on his first night there. I mean, he's way too smart and cunning and clever planning for that, right? Um, so it suggests to me that the dog attacked him, which shows, A, dogs do not automatically respond to him in a friendly fashion, right? Wolves, maybe. At least the wolves obey him, but the dog, and he did not seem to be able to exert Yana control. He had to put the dog down when it came after it, right? Um, so that does suggest to me that he could not just control the dog. So we have a difference between dog and wolf, it would seem. And that's kind of interesting. Um. So, uh, yeah, he did silence the dog, right? And that was useful. But again, presumably he could have just told it to shut up. And also, like, if the dog is, how ha- I mean, in a thunderstorm and whatever, like, it's not like it's going to give him away terribly, Right, um, I mean, like if the dog is howling, um, I don't think that he would. It's hard for me to imagine Dracula's gonna be. I must shut the dog up, no matter what. Um, especially since there are other dogs howling. They do it a lot, even in Whitby. I mean, he doesn't go around murdering them all. So I, I think it's probably that this half-bred mastiff um, uh, was uh, was probably was probably coming for him. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, Tom Ilwin says it's a proper English dog, not to be intimidated by foreigners. Uh yes. Yeah. Well, and Tom it reminds me of that that speech of Dracula's, right? Um uh he doesn't want anyone to look at him in a crowd, right and say, "Ah, oh, a stranger," right? And the first thing that happens is the dog does that, right? One of the English dogs is like, "Ah, oh, a stranger." Um yeah. Um Tomás says, you know, he seems to take pleasure in evil doing, so why wouldn't he just, like, kill a dog? You know, maybe he takes pleasure in just killing things. It's possible. And we know he takes pleasure in combat. Um, uh, So, you know, it's conceivable. Again, I just the thing that Jonathan learns about him yes he takes delight in the sort of the savage history you know we are we are the Dracula are a fighting race and all that um, but you know we suck are are a fighting race however um, the primary aspect of Dracula that Jonathan learned is his his calculation right um, he's very cunning uh, and he takes he's 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 a very careful planner um, but anyway Let's not get bogged down. we still got a lot to figure. We're still only in one of three phases, remember. Um, If we have to save Lucy for next time, that's okay. We can do more of the Lucy story at one time, but doggone it, we're going to get to Renfield tonight. Okay. Um, So what happens next? Tell me what happens next. So Dracula jumps off the ship in the form of a wolf goes herring off or wolfing off or whatever into the darkness right um towards the churchyard because it's it's uh, right next to Tate Hill pier at the foot of the cliff is where uh, he got in the fight with this with with a mastiff right where does it go where does he go where exactly does he go We know precisely where he goes. Um, You're an ancient Transylvanian vampire. It's your first night in England, right? You need to find somewhere to hang, right? I mean... You're new. You don't want to be attacked by any more mastiffs. Where do you find a good place to... Yes exactly he's in the graveyard where where in the graveyard yes you've got it Mark yes Yana it's not for the bench and the view that he goes there in the earth which one what tomb is he in whose grave is he in Exactly, Sarah. And, Mark, you had it before. The grave of the suicide. Geordie, who blew his brains out and then fell off the cliff. Right? He goes to the grave of the suicide. How do we know? There is an addition—this is Mina again— there is an an additional cause—an additional cause for why Lucy should be distressed, is the context, in that poor old Mr. Swales was found dead this morning on our seat— his neck being broken. He had evidently, as the doctor said, fallen back in the seat in some sort of fright, for there was a look of fear and horror on his face that the men said made them shudder. Poor dear old man. Perhaps he had seen death with his dying eyes. Maybe. A distinct possibility, Mina, that that's precisely what he saw. Right? Um... on the seat, which is on the grave, right? On Geordi's grave, grave, the grave of the suicide. So he's sitting there, on the, and he is lying there dead like he fell backwards when something... Came. So he either saw Dracula coming out of the grave and freaked out and died, or he saw Dracula coming back to the grave and he freaked out and died. Remember the dates. It's easy to start overlooking the dates because, you know, they come up so often, right? And you just kind of, your mind kind of uh, skims over them. At least I find that uh, it happens uh, very easily. But if we pay attention to the dates. The ship lands on the evening of August 8th. It is in the afternoon, sort of morning afternoon of August 10th that Mina is writing this, okay? Um, So he is found, Mr. Swales, is found dead on the seat... On the morning of August 10th, which means that he presumably fell over and broke his neck and died in the night. That is the night between August 9th and August 10th. It was the night of August 8th to August 9th that Dracula arrived. So Mr. Swales' death comes more than 24 hours after Dracula makes landfall. Okay? That's why I think it's likely, and remember, Mr. Swales is often up on the seat until dusk. It seems to me quite likely. Therefore, that it was at dusk on August 9th um, when Dracula, who was running that direction in the form of a wolf, right, takes refuge in the grave of the suicide, emerges from the grave of the suicide, presumably at first in gaseous form, then taking his own form upon leaving the tomb, and Mr. Swales is sitting there and freaks out and dies. That anyway is my theory, we, don't ha- we, we only get so much data, and it's never definitively resolved exactly what happened. But the timing seems to work, he, so he spent the intervening day. His first day in England was, seems to have been uh, spent in Geordie's grave, in the grave of a suicide. Remember that, um, exactly as several of you are pointing out, suicides are normally buried separately. This is where we come back to the lies written on the tombstones. There's that, that's an important lie. Um, that Jordy died falling from the cliff. Um, there's a reason why his tomb does not say, um, you know, blew his brains out uh, above the, you know, but um, he, uh, uh, he, 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 it can't say that. They lie and say that he died in. Is much lamented because otherwise they couldn't legally bury him in the churchyard. The grave of a suicide is unholy ground. Suicides are not buried in sacred ground, lest it taint the sacred ground. Um. uh, Was his grave empty? No, no. Jordy's there. He's not one of those lies, right? They're a bunch of empty graves, right? If uh, if Dracula's just looking for a you know a, a vacancy sign. Right Again, we had Mr. Swales talk about all the vacancies in the graveyard, right? But it's not vacancy that I, that I think he's looking for. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's that peculiar. So on the one hand, he goes right to the churchyard. Right? Presumably there are many other unhallowed places around that he could find, but he goes right to the churchyard, and we see he's shipped with him dirt from the chapel at Castle Dracula, and you'll remember him emphasizing to Jonathan how glad he is that there is a chapel of old times in Carfax, the house that, uh, that, that Jonathan bought for him. Right? So, okay. So, his connection with sanctified ground is complicated. He can't lie in Ground that's totally unconnected with the church and churches, but he can't lie in sacred ground either. So he goes to the grave of the suicide. Okay. Um, all right. So he goes. So that's where he is. Um. Notice the. Um, okay, one last thing. One last thing about what happened here. Uh, one last sort of piece of context for what Dracula has done in his landing. Back to our correspondent to the Daily Graph. The sequel to the strange arrival of the derelict in the storm last night is almost more startling than the thing itself. It turns out that the schooner is a Russian from Varna, and is called the Demeter. She is almost entirely in ballast of silver sand, with only a small amount of cargo, a number of great wooden boxes filled with mold. Uh, Not mold like bread mold, M-O-U-L-D, meaning rich, earth, Like, the mold is like the layer of really rich soil made mostly of rotting leaves and decomposing bodies and things that you get in the top layer of, like, forest and everything. Tolkien was really fond of the word mold. Uh, You may remember it being used at at, at many points. Um, Exactly, Nancy. uh, Like, airmen walked uh, upon the mold, precisely. Precisely. So it's dirt. Um, uh, But I think, uh, filled with mold, I think our correspondent is, like it just would sound too weird to say boxes filled with dirt, right? I mean, or even with earth, right? It just seems weird. So he calls it mold. Like, maybe it's particularly rich soil, which is being imported for exotic gardening or something. I mean, you could see him almost theorizing about why on earth anyone is shipping boxes of dirt. This cargo was consigned to a Whitby solicitor, Mr. S. F. Billington, of number 7, the Crescent, who this morning went aboard and formally took possession of the goods consigned to him. The Russian consul, too, acting for the charter party, took formal possession of the ship and paid all harbor dues, etc. Nothing is talked about here today except the strange coincidence. The officials of the Board of Trade have been most exacting in seeing that every compliance has been made with existing regulations. Do you see the significance of this? It's, it's, I, I, I don't even know how many times I read this before I really understood... The true significance of Samuel F. Billington. Um, Samuel F. Billington is amazing. Now, for you very careful readers, where have we heard the name Samuel F. Billington before? This is not the first time. There's a reason I know the S stands for Samuel. Got it, James! Very good! very good it was one and Jennifer's got it too remember those three letters that Jonathan sees and he looks up and he peeks at the at who they're addressed to one of the letters that Jonathan saw in Count Dracula is addressed to Samuel F. Billington and Sons solicitors Whitby exactly, exactly. in other words Dracula had like the, his cargo is designed to land at Whitby it's being shipped. Samuel F. Billington. So from Transylvania, he, by letter, contacted a Whitby solicitor in order to arrange with him the import of goods. Boxes of mold, right? Boxes of clay, as they are invoiced, right? So what's the big deal about that? The big deal about that is the fact that this derelict ship, which was lost at sea, and incredibly, in a storm, with all sails set, and a corpse lashed to the helm, navigated the, the harbor and beached itself safely on the shore, turns out to actually have been meaning to go to Whitby. Like, it's, it's not just that it made it to a port. It made it to its assigned port, despite the fact that the captain, by his own evidence, has been dead for a day, right? I mean, that's kind of amazing, and they're are, there are, they notice they call it a coincidence, right? I mean they are they are shocked, but that's why they call it even more startling than the event. I mean, again, crazy enough that that thing would make safe landfall somewhere. That it would make safe landfall in the port at which it was to which it was consigned to go. I mean, seriously, it's both a miracle and a coincidence, Carrie. Exactly. I mean, unbelievable, right? And what of course should we be remembering we should be remembering Jonathan's observations about how carefully Dracula plans in advance right and how he's able to uh, uh, to anticipate problems that might arise and circumvent difficulties that could get in his way but with um, foresight right could be gotten past. Um, Exactly, Philip. The, um, the may a man may ha- have two solicitors conversation. Exactly. He's going to... So, so you see why he's asking that. Like, If I if I may, make a contract with Samuel Billington in Whitby, does that mean I have to use him for everything? Is it going to seem strange in England if I hire Samuel F. Billington in Whitby and then hire somebody else down in Exeter? right? Or, you know, because he's already... Or, or, like, do I have to use... Is Samuel F. Billington going to think it's weird that I was using Peter Hawkins in Peter Hawkins in Exeter to buy my house, but then I, right. Those are the questions again. It's how much suspicion am I going to um, am I going to raise? Um, great question, Penny. But I think we can figure out the answer. Penny asks, "Why Whitby? His house is near London. Why not land in the southeast of England? Why up in like Yorkshire?" Great question. Why? Why? I think we can figure this out. Why? Why? Similarly, since he's buying a house near London, why does he? Um, why does he hire an Exeter solicitor, Peter Hawkins? Uh, you know Jonathan's boss. Why does he hire him to buy his house? He explains this to Jonathan back in chapter two, three. Keeping secrets? Yeah. He said to Jonathan he didn't want any local interest to be served, right? He knew that somebody coming in from Exeter would be objective, he says. Had he hired a local London solicitor, the London solicitor might have said, here's this foreigner coming in who's never even seen the place, and he's buying the house before he even arrives, so I'm going to palm off on him this property I've been trying to unload for ages, right? doesn't want any local interest to be served, right? He just wants to hire somebody to come and who's going to be looking at the place objectively. But, of course, the other consequence is that it's harder to trace, right? Um, if he had landed near London and everyone, and, you know, people were like, hey, wow, it's a miracle and a coincidence. Like, it's the guy who lives right there, right? Um, Whitby is up is, is up in the north of England. Uh, it's like, in Yorkshire. Way up, um, like, not too far south of, this, of the Scottish border is where Whitby is. Um, so by, by coming into port up there and then having his goods transported by Samuel F. Billington and Sons, solicitors, um, they arranged the shipping, the carting uh, of his boxes down to London to his new house. Nobody's going to trace it, right? Everybody in Whitby, who is still, it's a, it's a nine days wonder up in Whitby, all they know is like, oh yeah, the boxes got taken care of by the local solicitor and he's just going to be like, oh yeah, I sent them off to this guy down in London. Right? No problem. Right? No questions. Um, let's look at Renfield. I've still got like a good 15 minutes to look at Renfield. Okay. So we have—back to our zoophagus patient, then, right? He's zoophagus. He is attempting to extend his life through very rational means of absorbing the lives of other creatures, thus adding to his gross life total. And, of course, we mean gross in more than one sense. Um, But Renfield's behavior alters strangely, as Jonathan—or, excuse me, uh, John Seward observes— I thought I would find out if his apathy were real or only assumed, and tried to lead him to talk of his pets, a theme which had never failed to excite his attention. At first he made no reply, but at length he said testily, "'Bother them all. I don't care a pin about them.' "'What?' I said. "'You don't mean to tell me you don't care about spiders?' Spiders are at present his hobby, and the notebook is filling up with columns of small figures. To this he answered enigmatically, "'The bride-maidens rejoice the eyes that await the coming of the bride.' But when the bride draweth nigh, the maidens shine not to the eyes that are filled. He would not explain himself, but remained obstinately seated on his bed all the time I remained with him. Exactly, Nancy. See, this quite puzzling expression, which John Seward can't make anything of at all, it's easy for us to understand. Right, Nancy? It is a weird analogy, I will grant you, but the spiders are clearly the bride maidens and Dracula's the bride, right? Um, Yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah, Jennifer, how does Renfield know that Dracula's coming? Good question. How does Renfield know Yes, Arthur is remembering a lot of uh, Hebrew psalms about the bride who represents Israel and the bridegroom uh, is God. Yes, yes. Lots of, uh, of language in that direction in the parables of Jesus in the New Testament as well. Absolutely. So one reason for the creepy marriage language that he's using, it's creepy religiously connotated marriage language that he's using. Which I think is pretty significant. Um, let's keep reading. This is that night. He escapes and runs away to the that creepy house next door. Dracula's house. Carfax. Right. Remember Jonathan mentioned uh, when he was talking about the property with Dracula back in Chapter 3 that... Um, It it borders, his new house borders a lunatic asylum, right? On the far side of the house, I found him pressed close against the old iron-bound oak door of the chapel. He was talking, apparently, to someone, but I was afraid to go near enough to hear what he was saying, lest I might frighten him and he should run off. "'Chasing an errant swarm of bees is nothing to following a naked lunatic when the fit of escaping is upon him. "'After a few minutes, however, I could see that he did not take note of anything around him, "'and so ventured to draw nearer to him, the more so as my men had now crossed the wall and were closing him in. "'I heard him say, "'I am here to do your bidding, master. I am your slave, and you will reward me, for I shall be faithful.' I have worshipped you long and far off. Now that you are near, I await your commands, and you will not pass me by, will you, dear master, in your distribution of good things? Yes, Nancy, this is definitely the religious capitalization. Absolutely. Absolutely. What just happened here? Renfield says... I have worshipped you long and afar off. Really? How did Renfield know Dracula? How did he know he was near? Did you know he was coming? Did he send another ren- uh, letter to Renfield, dear Renfield, my long-term pen pal? I'm coming, and I hope to you know we can uh, meet up in person sometime soon. Right? Probably not pen pals, karita, I agree. Carrie Gross is pointing out very appositely that Renfield is quite emphatically coming to Dracula of his own free will. Let me ask this question another way. So, think about options here. right? Either A, Renfield does have some prior familiarity with Dracula, or B, he doesn't. And he is merely perceiving him in some vague and somewhat mystical spiritual sense, right? And I think the evidence is very heavily on the second side. I think the evidence is very, very strong that Renfield has never met Dracula before, has never been to Transylvania before, um, has had no correspondence with Dracula to warn him that he was coming, but merely perceives him in the same way that Mr. Swales seemed to perceive that Dracula was coming. Um. Why do I say that? Where is he? I mean, like, literally, where is he standing? Renfield. He's standing at the door of the chapel. We have very good reason. We have very good reason to believe that that's where Dracula is. Right? Mm-hmm. So notice... Renfield has made a beeline not only for Dracula's house, but for the room that Dracula is in, right? And, I mean, if you want to invent a story that, like, he knows Dracula, and he knows Dracula well enough to know that he really likes hanging out in chapels, so, of course, he goes to the chapel door, reasoning that's probably where he's going to be hanging out. I don't believe it. <laughs> I just, I don't, that does not seem to me what's going on here. Renfield is, Besides which, Renfield gets no correspondence, right? He doesn't receive letters. He's locked up in a lunatic asylum, right? Um, Dr. Seward would surely mention it if he got a letter. Uh, so, no, he gets no correspondence. He just somehow knows. And when does he know? We know the, we know the dates, right? Yeah, text messages, exactly. Um, we know the dates, right? When does this change come over Renfield? As soon as Dracula lands... No. No. When does the change come over him? When the boxes are delivered. Yes. When the boxes are delivered. Which, to jump ahead, also correlates with that period of several days where Lucy was doing much better. She seemed to be rallying, right, and her spirits were high, um, and she's, like, playing tennis with Arthur and stuff. Yeah. Lucy had a really good couple of days. Meanwhile, on the same day that Lucy starts having a good couple of days, Renfield is suddenly like... <laughs> right? <laughs> Ditch the flies and spiders. Right? I am out of the spider business. Um, yes, the madman has senses, which most people don't, as Tomas says. I mean, I, 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 I think... Um, he seems to perceive Dracula's... not just Dracula's existence, not just Dracula's... present Dracula's proximity. He can feel, in some way, where Dracula is. To the extent that he knows the door to go to. Um, And Carrie, uh, exactly as you say, if he knew Dracula socially, he'd have come to the front door and rung the bell, right? Uh, not pressed himself up against the chapel door and spoke to him through the door. Um... So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I don't think there's any... Um, and notice, but notice something even more fun. If we say to ourselves, surely Renfield must have traveled. Surely there must have been some, com- some correspondence between them in order for Renfield to... Do you know who you sound like if you say things like that? You sound like Jonathan in chapter one. You sound like the ship captain right up until the last day. There must be a rational explanation for this, right? Come on, we know better, right? We know better. Um, we have all kinds of reasons to think that this kind of thing happens, right? Renfield, we've already seen in our early glimpses of Renfield back in chapters 5 and 6 that Renfield is like Dracula, Right? He wants to extend his life. He wants to increase the store of life that he has. And so he's made himself into a kind of, uh, you know, at-home vampire, right? Um, He's kind of a, you know, he's... Renfield's taken the DIY approach, (laughs) right, to vampirism. Um, But it's the same principle there seems to be some connection between Renfield and Dracula. When Renfield says, I have worshipped you long and afar off, he doesn't know who Dracula is. The conviction that he has had, the thing he has sort of dedicated his life to doing, increasing his own life by absorbing the life of others, is, I think... What he is saying is uh, is worshipping him from afar, right? He recognizes not just that Dracula is evil and he's evil and they should hang out together, but a real likeness. But not just a likeness. He acknowledges. I mean, look at the insight that Renfield has. I perceive A. You are here. B. I perceive you are like me. C. I perceive you are my master right you are what i want to be when i grow up right you are the you are the fulfillment you are the realization of all of my life enhancement fallacies or fantasies right and and what am i on d d he realizes that or or has some kind of hint or theory or hope that dracula can confer that on someone else right that that that's communicable, right? Um, so, um... Yeah. So he just... He, he seems to, to know these things. To perceive these things. Um... You know, a couple of you have made references to uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I have to admit, I can't help but think of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell now in this passage. Uh, That, of course, never happened to me before when I read this book because I had never read that book before. Uh, But thinking about the insight of Madmen here, I yeah, Renfield, he's in a different place, right? Um, And yeah, James, he thinks that he thinks that uh, that Dracula is going to understand him, right? That's why he comes to introduce himself. Right to abase himself before Dracula. Um, Yeah, Carrie, so when the real arrives, he he is somehow attuned to him. He senses him, knows him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So... um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And and I think we have to confront this. I I think that um, any attempt to rationalize this, to create a backstory for Renfield, which would explain all of this. I mean, it's a natural impulse, right? And it's, an, but it's a very ironic impulse in the context of this book, right? Um, that's exactly what, uh, you know, all of the uh, highly reasonable modern 19th century people would be doing, right? Um Another change in my patient. At five o'clock I looked in on him and found him seemingly as happy and contented as he used to be. He was catching flies and eating them, and was keeping note of his capture by making nail marks on the edge, on the edge of the door between the ridges of padding. When he saw me, he came over and apologized for his bad conduct, and asked me in a very humble, cringing way to be led back to his own room and to have his notebook again. I thought it well to humor him. So he is back in his room with the window open. "'He has the sugar of his tea spread out on the window sill, "'and is reaping quite a harvest of flies. "'He is not now eating them, "'but putting them into a box as of old, "'and is already examining the corners of his room "'to find a spider. "'I tried to get him to talk about the past few days, "'for any clue to his thoughts would be of immense help to me, "'but he would not rise. "'For a moment or two he looked very sad, "'and said in a sort of far-away voice, "'as though saying it rather to himself than to me. "'All over,' All over, he has deserted me. No hope for me now unless I do it for myself. (laughs) Veronica says she likes the idea that even mental patients apparently have tea time. Yeah, exactly. Um, Now, again, see, this is in my mind. This is completely irrefutable, right? He, he doesn't. Why is he doing this? What happened? What's really happening? We're still playing the What's Really Happening game, right? What's really happening? Why is he doing this here, now? He got dumped. How does he know he's dumped? How does he know he's dumped? This is the very end of chapter... near the very end of chapter 9, right? Jonathan is looking in on... Uh or or John Seward, right? Fourth of September is when this stuff happens. On that same day, right? Fourth September, John Seward also, who is also looking in on Lucy, right? Sends a telegram to Arthur. Patient still better today. Still better, right? She's been getting better, she's better again. Wow, she's doing really doing great. Five September, patient greatly improved. Sixth September, terrible change for the worse. Dracula leaves. Dracula leaves. And we have no sense, no reason to suspect that through any outward sense, Renfield can know that Dracula left. But he can sense that he left, and he, Renfield, draws the conclusion that he's gone and not coming back. Notice how this shows both This both confirms that Renfield has just some kind of sense of Dracula's presence. He can tell when he's close and when he's gone. But also, it shows that he's not in Dracula's confidence. Or else he'd know, like, oh no, the Master's just off on a business trip. He'll be back soon, right? He he doesn't know that. He senses Dracula's presence and he's enormously excited. So excited, he immediately throws over the whole cumulative life-gathering project that he's been working on, right? The whole Zoophagy project, you know, Project Zoophagy, right? Kicks that right out the window, literally, and uh, and says, okay, no, this is the real deal. My ship has come in, right? And it was a Russian ship, and it crashed up at Whitby. So he's, he's excited. But now, but he's gone again. And he's like, well, my window of opportunity's closed. Back to the flies for me, right? Um he doesn't understand. He doesn't know what Dracula's doing. He doesn't know Dracula's plans. He's not, clearly not, in Dracula's confidence. He is merely drawing conclusions based upon what he himself senses, what he himself perceives. Now, keep this in mind when you are asking yourself, as I want you to ask yourself, um, next time we're going to do a more thorough, uh, a more complete look um, let me just remind myself here. Let's see. Where are we going to get to next time? I'll make sure I don't make a mistake here. And accidentally, so... Okay, yes. Okay, good. Next time we're going to talk about the whole Lucy story. Okay, well, all right. not, the, not the whole Lucy story. A lot of the Lucy story. Um, there still be... There's there's still some Lucy bits that we're not going to get to next time. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> that came out wrong. Never mind. Um... <laughs> the, um The progress of Lucy's illness we're going to be looking at next time. And so next time I want to um, start with the question, what really happened, right? And there are a bunch of questions that that, that people often ask, right, that are kind of confusing. Like, why Lucy? Why does he pick Lucy? How does he get to Lucy? Why does Lucy go to him? What's up with that? How does that work? Um, and Yana, yeah, we'll get to the Dutch guy next time. <laughs> uh, so Yana, uh, I hope you don't find Van Helsing too offensive. Uh, I, I don't. Uh, I, I, um, I don't like to think that Bram Stoker was making fun of the Dutch uh, when he was writing that. Um, uh, but I, I can't absolutely rule it out. Um, I particularly, I particularly like. Um, I particularly like uh um Van Helsing's attempt to do English idioms. Uh it's I think it's uh that's that's especially fun. But anyway, okay, sorry. Um Okay. Lucy, next time. So, how does she get there? What happens? See if you can see if you can piece it out, right? Um I want to do the what-really-happened version of Lucy's, of the whole course of Lucy's illness, right? We can, I think, figure out pretty much all of it. And in the course of that, we're going to learn a lot about, um, a lot more about about Dracula's uh, um, uh, powers and limitations, right? Um, Okay. Um, Yes, also, thank you, Morgan, for reminding me. Also, um, it will be in your best interest to forget everything you know about blood types just just forget about it okay um, There are totally different rules for blood transfusions. just go with it okay just absolutely go with it. It will make your life so much easier when you when you move forward so. Just a little warning for next time. Thanks, everybody. So chapters ten through twelve for next time, and we will, uh, we will, we will talk about Lucy and Lucy's uh, unfortunate fate. Thanks, everybody. Good night. See you guys next week.